find it interesting as a former journalist that politicians and journalists have a few really interesting similarities. One, <laughs> they have We're to, both handsome. Of course. Okay, that's. So, two. <laughs> um, you both have to communicate very well to audiences. And the third is that you have to get support. In journalism, support is viewership, and politics, the support is votes. So, what have you found has been the keys to? success in those two areas for from the politics perspective and from the journalism perspective. passion without question you know I, I talk about the the five P's of public service and passions one of the most important if you don't if you don't believe in what you're doing if you're not passionate about it go get another job if you don't love people people's another key to, to public service persistence um, policy and politics because you got to sell the the idea, you got to be persistent, but I would say if I had to choose one thing, if you're not passionate about what you do, and you see too many people in elected office who, who are cynical, uh, who have lost that fire in the valley. I'm 56 years old. I started in the Civil Rights Movement. I haven't lost it yet, and when I do, I want to get out because then I won't be any good to me or anybody else. Uh, that doesn't mean that you don't uh, have to sometimes you know, uh, compromise in ways that you, you you never thought you would to get something done. It doesn't mean that you you, you don't sometimes uh, you know settle for things that you might not otherwise. But I think for the most part, uh, you got under you got to you got to be passionate. For me, that's I think that's the most. Well, important. as a political, I'm a political reporter. I don't know, know much about covering the arts or something. Uh, our job, I think, is aggressive oversight. There's a reason why that guy in the British Parliament said, there's the fourth estate over there. We don't have any power. And it's not oversight for me. It's oversight for the people we communicate with, we, our readers, our, our listeners, or our viewers. Let us pretend, and just between all of us, since it's off the record particularly, I don't have to pretend. Let's pretend I really like this guy. And I really, I really think that... What he wants to do, an initiative that he has, is the right thing to do. He wants to raise some taxes here or something. But as a journalist, my job is to make him explain it and to make him tell through me, my viewers, why he thinks it's the right thing, to answer his critics. And I'm going to go at him hammer and tong. I think not rudely, I hope not rudely, but just because I like him, just because I think he's right, is no reason, in fact, I'm going to be, be perhaps too tough to give him a pass. So I think that's what uh, political journalism, in the sense of working with public officials, is about. I agree with him. Yeah, I mean, if you can't take the heat, you shouldn't be in the kitchen. So they're, they're going to ask you tough questions. It's not personal. It really isn't. That's right. It's not personal. You, if you can't explain your position, then maybe you don't have a good one, you know? So. Um, yes. Th thank you both uh, for your comments. I so I had a question sort of around the, the recent complete abdication of, of responsibility, say, in, in the California and New York state legislatures, just as two recent <laughs> examples. Um, $26 billion. I mean, is, so both of you, I mean, Mayor, you spoke about service, and, and Mr. Johnson, you spoke about sort of activism around particular issues. But I mean, what about the sort of more general disaffection, sort of disaffected state of, of the, um, you know, of the sort of voting public? I mean. It doesn't. It seems to me. I know a lot of really uh, involved community activists who don't know a thing about 
the state of Cal California state politics or New York state politics. And I know a lot of um, a lot of people who sort of work very much in, on specific issues like healthcare, who who aren't sort of particularly generally fired up about the sort of sad state of um, of of public servants, say in well, in state legislatures, for example. So I mean, how do you, separate from just sort of getting generally involved in the community or, or getting really fired up about a single issue, I mean, what what about how do we fix the general sort of malaise of the voting I think population. We get How do we address that? I, I, I really, do. I, I don't think you concede your 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 government uh, to to politicians or to the two parties. I, I think people got to be involved. Uh, they got to they got to understand that if they're not engaged in their democracy, we'll lose it. And that's that's part of the message here. Um, a, as an example, you know, you read, uh, you know, we, we have a twenty three billion dollar. Uh, budget problems, you know, in California, we it, it was it started at a sixty billion dollars out of a hundred and ten billion dollar budget. People want all these services, and they don't want to pay for them. And what's happening in California, uh, particularly, is that you know is, is that the system is broken. I say on the left and the right, and I, and I come from more that side of the ledger, but it's broken on uh, all the way around two-thirds vote to pass a budget. Only three states in the country have a two-thirds vote to pass a budget. Two-thirds vote to, to raise taxes. Only about 16 uh, states or 18 states have uh, a supermajority of that level to, uh, to raise taxes. Term limits is broken. You know, d d d I, was I was majority whip in my first year, majority leader in my second year, and speaker of the assembly in my third year. For those of you who know Willie Brown, I'm no Willie Brown. I mean, Willie was there for 15 years before he got elected speaker and was speaker for 16 years. You know, you don't go to a heart surgeon, you don't go to the least experienced heart surgeon. We have people in charge of the government who have been there a year. And, you know, uh, redistricting is broken. So all of those things have created a confluence of a meltdown because, you know, on, on both the left and the right, we're not challenging, you know, one another and, and, and finding uh, the, the what I call the moral middle that, that says, hey, th this has got to work. We've got to fund government. We can't just give up on it. So uh, the answer, I think, is that uh, it's broken on the left and the right, and I, I mentioned some of the things, that, why it's broken, but I, but I also think that people aren't engaged. They're not voting. They're not reading. They don't, they don't know what the issues are. It's amazing how little people know about what's going on. And Yet everything that's going on in Sacramento impacts every element of our life. Stanley is probably, by the way, one of the most knowledgeable people about why it's broken. Uh, but you know, he's uh, he's the exception. As a reporter, as opposed to be a, being a commentator or an editorial writer, it's not my job to affect change. It's your job. It's my job to bring you things that I believe are factual information so that if that information, if those facts buttress your case, you now have a much stronger argument to affect change or to convince other people to join you to affect change. I know this sounds terrible as if I don't care about slum landlords. It's not my job to eliminate the slums. It's my job to bring you the information about why if the slums you take are eliminated, life is so much better for everyone involved. Often people mistake, I think, these two things. They want us to, as, as, as reporters who are not commentators or columnists, that, that they do a great job. That's fine. It, they want us to get behind good causes. 
personally, as a voter, an individual, I want to get behind the causes that I think are good. But as a reporter, that's not my job. It's not my job. On health care reform, which I, I believe in, I hope we get it this year. I hope it covers almost everyone. I hope we do it. It's my job to point out what the sides are saying and the fact that the people who want this health care reform still can't figure out how to pay for it. Maybe it doesn't matter. Maybe you should argue, let's not worry about the cost in dollars today. Let's worry about the costs in human lives. Great. But it's my job to bring you the facts, and that's it. Question up front. Miller, um, it's Thank on. you. Um, <laughs> Mine is, too. <laughs> uh, May, I was really glad that you started with um, a note on cynicism of the government and mistrust. I think that's a note that a lot of young people um, that resonates with us, at least I can speak for myself, it definitely does. And probably um, the momentum that we saw with Obama really taps into that and that he was able to use that cynicism and channel it for something that's great. Um, my question is around social entrepreneurship because I think that's something that youth gravitate towards, maybe because it's the sexiness, the class, the glamour, um, but I'm really excited, and I think a lot of us are, that President Obama has incorporated that into his office. He's created an office of social innovation. How does that work at the city level? Um, what do you see as the role of innovation in city politics or state politics, social entrepreneurship? Thanks. Well, first of all, I, I think what is so exciting about President Obama is that he uh, has generated uh, the, the same kind of uh, excitement and optimism and hope and idealism in young people that you saw in the 60s in many ways. I mean, the, the, it was young people who convinced their parents and their grandparents to vote for Obama. You know, it, it was amazing. I mean, I saw that whole thing. I was big with Hillary, uh, national chair of her campaign, and uh, one of them. And, and I saw my kids. I couldn't, you know, they were going with Obama, you know. It was, it was an amazing thing. And so that's, a, that's great. And he's actually in, in trying to engage particularly young people, but people in this idea of service uh, as well. In terms of social entrepreneurship, as, as, um, as I understand it, uh, you know, I think it's important to get the, get the best minds uh, involved in solving the biggest problems that we face as a human race. Uh, and in our cities, as an example, you have uh, Teach for America, these young kids who are going to Princeton, you know, your classmates uh, coming and working in the inner city, uh, trying to change the world, putting, uh, using their skills to, to, to help solve uh, one of America's biggest dilemmas. And, and that's what we do uh, around educating a whole underclass of people today that, are, that, that can't read and write, uh, that aren't going to college, that, 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 that are not going to be able to take the rightful place. So I think that's uh, one uh, area. I think education uh, and social entrepreneurship in that area is very, very important in my mind. Uh, I think it's, I think there are a lot of NGOs and nonprofits that are doing uh, very, very important work uh, with homeless, uh, with, uh, uh, you know, um, in the area of uh, civil rights and human rights that I think 
is important. I think everybody in America should be, I don't believe in necessarily going to the Army, but I do think we should all have uh, some compulsory service involved with our citizenship. Because if we don't, I think we're gonna you, you're going to lose the essence of what our democracy is all about. I agree with that last point, but don't be cynical about our government because it doesn't move fast enough on things that you think are, and I would think are very important. And you see people literally dying, perhaps, uh, or not quite so bad, because it doesn't move fast enough. Be, be upset about corruption where you see it, or sloth where you see it, or rigid ideology that doesn't take into account what's going on in this world where you see it. But overall, the reason it doesn't move fast enough is not because we send bad, dumb people to Washington. The vast majority of politicians that I've known on both sides of the aisle are just the opposite. There are a few crooks, there are a few stupid people, but then in my business, the same thing. It's getting together this diverse points of view to mass. It's like a military operation. You mass firepower, finally, against that island or that island or that island. The idea, Victor Hugo said it, I've referred to it a couple of times, nothing so powerful as an idea whose time has come. Uh, and when that happens, and we have smart leadership, and I would agree at the moment we have every promise to, that there is a smart leader up there who knows how to do it. We'll, we'll see. I mean, I'm, I'm still going to reserve the right to not be surprised if it doesn't work. Uh, it'll get done. It's just slow. Final thing I'll say, I know our time is up. When Earl Warren, the great justice from California, former governor, put together he, he said for that Brown versus Board of Education, he needed an absolute, not majority, he needed a unanimous decision. There was a justice named Felix Frankfurter. What do you got? Oh, oh come here. A monkey recognizes, well, never mind. His brethren. His brethren. I was going to say it, but I didn't want to get into the argument over creation and all that. Felix Frankfurter was put on the court by uh, Franklin Roosevelt to be a liberal justice, liberal in terms of, turned out to be a very conservative justice, and he didn't really want to sign on to that decision. In order to get him to sign on, they had to put in this phrase, with all deliberate speed. Uh, justice Marshall, before he left the court, I did an interview, he told me the story. He said he was the lead attorney on Brown versus Board, then NAACP. He said we were ecstatic. We went back to the office, we're reading the decision, we're just so thrilled, it's finally happened. He said, I has, he's had a girl, that's what he said. I had a smart girl working for me. She got the dictionary, she pulled it down here. She said, look here. And we looked, and the first definition of deliberate was slow. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? Yeah. We're out of time, but I promise one more question, if we can make it a quick question and a brief answer. Brief answer, yes. Sure. Uh, I'm sure that in both of your guys' roles, you've seen lots of passionate, well-intentioned, really smart people. Uh, whether they're in elected office or in the White House or in city government. And I'm sure that some of them have been much more successful than others, despite the fact they're all passionate and thoughtful and smart. And so I'm curious, what is it that separates those who are highly successful from those that aren't? And especially, what are the people who are passionate and smart? What are they likely to trip up on along the way? I think determination and persistence. The good ones are dogged. They don't give up. Uh, they, they zero in on something, and they don't quit until they're done. So that's what I'd say. Thinking about presidents, the presidents that I've 
seen that have been successful, pick two or three, two big things, and like the military, concentrate their firepower on that, and then work the system. I know what I sound like when I say well, uh, the system I describe, but they know how to work the system, whether it's Franklin Roosevelt uh, or Ronald Reagan, uh, who was the transformational president, Obama was right, or Barack Obama, we hope. Work the system to make it happen, uh, rather than simply like Jimmy Carter, who was very smart, and on the day Carter was inaugurated, he had exactly the same public approval rating as Barack Obama on the day he was inaugurated. Jimmy Carter was not a national politician, did not know how to work the system, just thought he could do it because he was president, he was a good man, and wanted to do it, and failed. Thank you very much, Sam Donaldson and Mayor Villaragosa. Uh, thank you. Hey, Tony, you were